Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Please stand for the reading of the Word of God for our sermon text this morning. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now on a day like Easter, although it's not as much true as it used to be true, it's typical for uh, us to be joined in worship by those who do not know God, those who are not believers. And so the first thing I need to do as I finish reading this passage of Scripture to you is to make it clear this is being written to Christians. The Apostle Paul is writing the Christians in the city of Ephesus in the ancient Roman Empire, and everybody he's writing to believes in Jesus Christ. Everybody he's writing to has come to Christ had their sins exposed by the holiness of Jesus, has fallen on their face before him and shut their mouths and said, Jesus, have mercy on me. They're all believers in Jesus Christ. All of them. And so when he says to them, you were dead in their trespasses and sins, you see that it's past tense. Those who do not belong to Christ, those who have not yet fallen on their faces before Jesus, cannot say you were, but to them he would write, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But all of us, whether we're believers or unbelievers, are going to enter into this text as as if we were the recipients of the Apostle Paul's letter in Ephesus, and as if we were a part of the church, and therefore it is correct to say past tense. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And here what we see is in these first verses of chapter 2 of this letter, it's a short letter, um, we see these verses describe the condition of every man and every woman and every child who has not yet come to the cross of Jesus. And there's no exception to this. And so what is their condition? What was our condition before we came to Jesus? Well, first it says, dead, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is the first statement the Apostle Paul makes about every person who has not been born again by the Spirit of God. What does it mean to be dead? Well, it means you're incapable of action. The first mark of a dead person is they can't move. Like I said earlier, their heart's not beating, their lungs are not expanding, they're not pulling in and out air, blood isn't coursing through their veins, they have no volition because they're dead. They're helpless. They are no longer an actor, but they are acted upon. Their body is cleaned, they're embalmed sometimes, They're put in a casket. They have pallbearers who carry them. They have grave diggers who bury them. They are not acting. They are acted upon. 
Now, it seems kind of twisted, doesn't it, for the Apostle Paul to say that all people outside of Christ are dead. Because, you know, if you look around, everybody's walking. Everybody's moving. It doesn't look like people are dead. But you understand he's speaking spiritually because it's said, he, he goes on to define or to describe the deadness. And the deadness is what? It's dead in your trespasses and sins. And so we're speaking here spiritually. We're not speaking here physically, but we're speaking spiritually. And you know, when I think of preaching this to myself, let alone my wife, my children, my in-laws, my grandchildren, let alone you, I despair. Because if there's one thing that Facebook exists to contradict, it's this truth. Facebook exists to tell us all that we're vital, that we're beautiful, that we're perceptive, you know, that we're sophisticated, that we're evolved, that we're progressive, that we're alive, right? That's the purpose of Facebook. You tell other people how living you are, how, how wonderful you are, and they tell you, yes, you're wonderful, and I am too. I want to talk about me. Facebook has replaced Hallmark. So all these messages we give to each other about who we are and, and, and how much other people should want to know us and be friends with us, right? And then the Apostle Paul comes along, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says what? He says that outside of Jesus Christ, every man, every woman, every child is dead. And dead how? Dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's a stretch to preach this. And so what do I do? Well, first I read scripture, and then I always read somebody who's at least five centuries old. Because you have to go that far back to escape the cloying sentimentality and pure deception of Facebook. You have to go a long ways away to find somebody who is willing to talk to me as I am, as I see that I am. And how am I? I am dead. Outside of Christ, I am dead in my trespasses and sins. What are trespasses and sins? Sin is any want of conformity to the character of God. And so, you know, obviously, adultery is a sin, right? Homosexual practice is a sin. Fornication is a sin. Making and using pornography is a sin. Theft is sin. Lying is sin. Coveting is sin. And we all know that, but what we don't realize is any lack of conformity to the character and will of God is sin. And so once we get through some of the Ten Commandments, we think that, well, you know, we've done it. And generally, I don't commit adultery, except every minute. And generally, I don't covet, except Madison Avenue wouldn't exist without covetousness. And generally, I don't fornicate. But generally, we do think that we don't break the gross sins. We have ways of excusing our lust. We have ways of excusing our desire for our neighbor's ZTR. But if trespassing and sinning is any lack of conformity to the character and to the commands of God, the first command of God is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And when we begin to think about the fact that God is zealous for his own glory, God is very intense, making sure that no man stands in his presence and claims glory for himself. God is jealous for his glory. And then we begin to think about the ways in which we refuse to glorify God, right? We will not bow before God right? We will not honor him. We will not be saps and fools singing like idiots to his glory. 
we will not worship him. We will cultivate our own glory. We will judge what is proper for us in terms of our affections and our pride and glory. And so you think of ways in which this, last night I'm doing what maybe some of you were doing, which was watching the final four, <laughs> hoping Indiana's, you know, <laughs> legacy would be, legacy would be protected, right? And so before the teams come onto the floor, right before you actually see the players, did you, how many of you watched it? Remember what happened then? They glorified the tradition of the school. Remember that? They had this little video that was just positively divine. In other words, it was theological. In other words, it was worship. It was really worship. I watched one of them, and it made me very uncomfortable. And then the next one came on, and I turned it off. How much of sports is sports, and how much is idolatry? Don't you just feel the transcendence of Duke? You know, when we get done thinking about the issue of adultery and fornication, homosexuality and incest and lying and covetousness and all the crass sins, we haven't begun to think about God being jealous for his own glory. And that all it takes for us to be dead in our trespasses and sins is for us to lead an absolutely perfect life by the law, but to refuse to worship God. And we are dead in our trespasses and sins. God will not yield his glory to any man. And so all we have to do is refuse to worship God, and we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know this because if you go down to verse 3, you will say, among them, you notice up above, it's you were dead in your trespasses, in which you formed according to the course of the prince. And then all of a sudden, verse 3, it says, we too. Do you see that? Who's speaking there? The man that's speaking there is the Apostle Paul. Any of you remember what the Apostle Paul said about himself and the law? He said, as to the law of God, what? I was blameless. And so the Apostle Paul wasn't just a typical pagan who didn't care what the word of God said. The Apostle Paul grew up being absolutely scrupulous about the law. He did not commit adultery. He did not fornicate. He did not give himself to covetousness because the law had told him what covetousness was. The Apostle Paul, he himself testified publicly blameless according to the law. And yet, look what he says. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Isn't that weird? Why would the Apostle Paul include himself at that point? And why would he be so... Hi, dear brother. Welcome. Why would he be so specific in saying we too when he had been using you plural before, he all of a sudden switches to the first person plural. He says, we too. Well, it's because of what I was saying earlier, which is you can be scrupulous, you can be blameless according to the law in all of the crass sins, and yet at one point, your lust is what? Your lust is to prove your own righteousness. And that's what the Apostle Paul had done. He had given himself to being absolutely blameless according to the law, and he stood proudly before God, saying, I am blameless. And that was the lust of his flesh, the desire of his flesh, and what? The desire of his mind. See in verse 3? We all too formerly live in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Isn't that something? The Apostle Paul was blameless according to the law, but he himself says that he formerly lived in the lust of his flesh, the desires of his flesh, the desires of his mind. And what did his mind desire? His mind desired not to bow the knee before God. He would not 
worship God. And this is true of many of you. That you just will not worship God. And it may be that you do good works. It may be that you look at your life and you think that you can stand before God and give a pretty good accounting of not being overly selfish, not being overly lustful, not being overly uh, hedonistic, not being overly covetous, that you can look at your neighborhood and you can sort of, you know, separate out everybody and say, well, you know, so-and-so, he's a pervert, and so-and-so, he's a proud rich man, and so-and-so, he hits his wife, and so-and-so, because, you know, we can all go through our neighborhoods. We know what our neighbors do. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no question what our neighbors do, right? Everybody with me? I mean, you know, people might show up at Walmart and look good or bad, <laughs> you know. But in the neighborhood, there are no secrets. And when that man goes in his house, having accounted himself righteous like the Apostle Paul, he is a rebel against God. And he is confident in his own righteousness. And so he believes one day he'll stand before God and give a pretty good accounting of his life. You know, they say that uh, about in the teenage years, a man goes under bondage to lust. And then about in the middle age, he goes into bondage to money. And about in the old age, he dies in bondage to pride. You think of the two thieves on the crosses on either side of Jesus, one of whom was dying for his crimes and was filled with pride and mocked Jesus, and the other one had humility. And it just is unbelievable to think that that other one who stood for Jesus in that moment of his death, that Jesus said to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. Pride is a wicked, wicked sin. It's wicked. The Bible says God resists the proud. And boy, you come back to the United States of America, having traveled abroad, and I'm telling you, my chest swelled. (laughs) You know, no more shakedowns at the borders of African countries. I had a U.S. passport. And let me tell you, even if you've never gone out of this country, to be American is to be proud. Okay? Can we all cop to that? Oh, the money, the technology, the stock market, the military. And God hates pride. He hates it. And so you can be, like Paul, perfect in everything. And all you have is just a lust for self-will, self-aggrandizement, self-approval, self-righteousness. All you have is pride. And there you sit dead in your trespasses and sins. And then another thing in verse 3. Among them we too all formally, the Apostle Paul includes himself, lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. (laughs) How many men and women think they're superior because they don't give in to the gross fleshly appetite things. But the mind, the mind, the lust of the mind. And then he says this, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, including all men, all women, all children, all newborn children, all children conceived in the womb, all of them. What? By nature, children of wrath. Whose wrath? There's no question about that, is there? It's God's wrath. Why is God wrathful against little children, against infants? Because they are children of wrath. They are children of of their mother, of their father, they are children of Adam. Because since Adam's sin, every human being ever conceived has been a child of wrath by the testimony of God's word. God's word says there's none righteous, no, not one. 
If you read the uh, students of scripture through the centuries who have written on nature, by nature, children of wrath, you'll find, um, <laughs> you'll find things like you'll find them referring to little babies as being snakes. So, for instance, Calvin's writing about this, and he says that, you know, a little child who comes out, comes out hungry. And he says, we don't think about it this way, but a little child who comes out of the mother's womb hungry is no more naturally hungry than they are naturally a child of wrath. In other words, sinful. The little child that comes out of his mother's womb is both naturally hungry and naturally sinful, right? And as I was reading this, I was thinking about our newest grandchild, uh, Mary Louise, who since she's been born, won't eat. And so the most natural thing in the world, which is that a little, un, a little child will, will feed, will nurse, Mary Louise won't do. So she's, you know, she may take in 10 ounces a day, and that's a good day. And yet Mary Louise is a child of wrath. She's born under the wrath of God. It's so difficult for our Facebook generation to get this. We just think, what kind of a twisted person is God? And the answer is, God's no person. God is God. God made us. And so we don't judge him. We learn him. We study him. We get to know him. And this is almost the first thing we learn, is that we, every single one of us, are children of wrath, and that when we give birth to a child. When we adopt a child, that child is a child of wrath. There are all kinds of ways of trying to weasel out of this. You know, we, we refer to little children as innocents, and comparatively, they are. You know, if you compare a little child to us, most little children are innocents. But we're not making a claim for their standing before God, because before God, from the moment of their conception, they are given over to the wrath of God. Remember that David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. And he's not referring to sex being sinful. He's saying that that's how quickly the spark hits the man. That at the moment of conception, that man comes under the wrath of God. Now, I recently finished writing, or Nathan Alberson finished uh, editing a, a book I've worked on for years on fatherhood. And um, one of the things I said in that book is that as I look back on my life, I think one of the most beautiful things I've had in my life is a father who quoted scripture to me. So when I grew up, my father always quoted scripture to me. Not long passages, just little punchy things that kind of, you know, came to sort of, you know, shock me, <laughs> you know. And do you know that uh, these were the things he would say to me? He would say to me, Tim, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And I had no question he was talking about me. And he was saying I was double-minded. I still am. Then he would say to me, Tim, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, why would a dad say that to his son? Well, because he loved me. It's such a tragedy to think of how many men today are raising sons who don't quote to their son, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So that that son grows up realizing that the wickedness that he sees in his mind and heart and the lust of his flesh and the lust of his mind, that that wickedness is described in Scripture and that there's a solution for it. Because of course there's a solution for it. Why would God tell us in his word that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Who can know it? Unless God had provided a remedy so, for instance, when I got into high school, building on this curriculum that my father had placed me under, he was, he was the world's 
most intense homeschooler. All right. Building on that curriculum, when I was a junior in high school, my father, who was not handy, was a writer and a speaker, right? My father got his hands and made this for me, and I show this periodically in this church. You see it? And on the back, it says, Timothy from Dad, Christmas 1970. And so this father, who I had grown up hearing him look at me and say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Then Christmas 1970 took a bunch of horseshoe nails and tried to solder them together. Some of the solder has fallen off. And there were 11 crosses. And then do you see here, maybe you can't see it, but there's a little silver coin. And so you know what this is, isn't it? This, this is the 12 disciples. And of course it's the most precious gift that he ever gave me. It's in my office. What's it saying? Well, this is saying that all of those sinful men that followed Jesus Christ and were chosen by him as disciples had themselves deceitful hearts that were desperately wicked, so wicked that nobody could know them. And yet what? Well, according to tradition, all or almost all of them died martyrs' deaths. And so these desperately wicked men were changed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that eventually... Instead of running when Jesus was arrested and hiding themselves, or like big bad Peter, you know, when a servant girl comes to the fire, he, he curses. He uses obscenities saying that he doesn't know Jesus. Eventually, Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And eventually, Peter, this is Peter. Did you know that? Upside down. You know why Peter was crucified upside down? He said, I'm not worthy to die the way my master did. Flip me upside down. And they crucified him upside down. <laughs> and then this. Why would my dad put the silver coin there for heaven's sakes? <laughs> Couldn't he have hope? Hope and what's that? Hope and change. Couldn't he have hope? Well, that coin is there to remind me about Judas, who for coins, for silver, betrayed his Lord. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, but God. You know something? There's not one man, one woman, or one child who has ever come to Jesus in faith who has not passed through verses 1 to 3 and shut his mouth and said, true, 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 true. It is impossible to get to the but God except through verses 1 to 3. But God being rich in mercy... God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And who is it speaking of? It's speaking of those in Ephesus, in the decadent Roman Empire, who had confessed their sin and bowed before Jesus and worshipped him. 
And they had been dead in their transgressions, but God made them alive together with his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is what a Christian is. A Christian is a man or a woman or a child who God resurrects from death. Spiritual death in trespasses and sins. Bondage by the power of Satan to their lusts of their mind, the lusts of their flesh. A Christian is one that God has made alive. And why has God done it? Well, because he's rich in mercy, because he's filled with love. Go above to verse 4, please, back one. You see, rich in mercy because of his great love. That's why God gives us new life in Jesus. That's why God allows us to see how hopeless we are in our sin, because he's going to raise us from our sin. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Flip it, please. Even when we were dead in our... He, he made us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. We fall on our face before Jesus Christ and we confess our sins. That's what we do. And so every single time we come to church to worship Jesus, we confess our sins. Every single time. And the world is filled with only two people, two classes of people... One are those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and therefore will not confess their sin. And the other category of person is those who, because God has raised us from the dead, we confess our sins. That's it. The world has those who are dead and refuse to confess their sins and those who have been raised by Jesus and confess their sins. Now, why would the dead people refuse to confess their sins? Well, because they think that they'll be able to stand before God and give an account of their life. And so they're dead. They're under the wrath of God. They're they're completely slaves of Satan. There's no middle category. You're either a slave of God or a slave of Satan. They're living under the lusts that prevail within them. They're on the path the whole world is on. Why would those who... Are, have been resurrected with Christ, who God has raised from the dead, why would they confess their sins? Don't they know that if they confess their sins, God hates sin and God's wrath will abide upon them? Well, now they have faith to confess their sin because they know that Jesus said that he didn't come for the righteous who won't confess their sin because they don't have any sin to confess, but he came for the sinners. And so... With joy, we confess our sin. The sin doesn't make us joyful, but the freedom to confess our sin makes us joyful because we know Jesus was sent for sinners. And so we say, he came for me. And so, you know, I was raised to take joy in my father's statement. Tim, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then I remembered what? I remembered that Jesus said, that he came for sinners. And so when my dad would diagnose me properly, I was taught to take joy in my condition because I could depend on my Savior. And that's Christianity. Now, I know that it's hard to come into church on Easter morning, which is a morning of joy, and to have a preacher so intent on convicting you of sin. But I always think on Good Friday, when many fewer of us are in here celebrating the death of Jesus, that really the high holiday of the Christian isn't Easter. It's actually Good Friday. Because on Good Friday, we see the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins of all those who look to him. And so you look in the eyes of, uh, of believers who celebrate Good Friday. And they're sad, but they're joyful. We had such a morality play this this week. Did you all notice that on Thursday night, 
Thursday night is Monday Thursday. That's the night when the disciples betrayed, when Judas betrayed. That's, that's the night when all the disciples abandoned Jesus. You know this? They're in the upper room, and then they go out, and then they come and arrest him. You remember that? Did you all notice that this week, that night, all of the Christians that serve in the Indiana legislature wrote up a change to the law so that nobody could accuse him of having any Christian view on sexuality. And then the next morning, the governor had signed it, making sure that everybody knew that none of those Christians, not the Christian governor, not any of the heads of the the agencies, not any of the people in the assembly, nobody could possibly accuse any of all those Christians that serve up in Indianapolis, nobody could accuse them of having any Christian view of sexuality. No, 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 We have no king but Caesar, right? Did you notice it happened? The very night the disciples betrayed Jesus. The very night. Do you think if I had been there, do you think I would have signed it? If you had been an assemblyman or a senator, would you have quick made it clear that you didn't, no, no, we have no king but Caesar. Do you think that if you had been with the Jews at the time of our Lord's arrest and Pilate came out, do you think you would have said, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Do you think you would have said that? Listen, I guarantee you, had you been up in Indy, you would have signed. You would have felt like that was your duty. And if you had been in Jerusalem, you would have cried out, crucify him. And so would I have. And it's not until you and I humbly stand before God, not not me, God, And we say, you got my number. That's who I am. Not until then has God made us alive in Christ Jesus. Not until then. As I've been preparing to preach to you this morning, there's an image that kept coming into my mind over and over again. Because I'm very aware that that Facebook is, is mainly an attempt for us to burnish our image in front of other people, right? I have a Facebook account. I read. I know what it, what it does. Even preachers that put up preachy stuff are burnishing their image, okay? And I was thinking about the difficulty of us recognizing that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that inside of us dwells no good thing. And I, reading Calvin's and reading the references to snakes, because snakes are often used as a placeholder for evil, right? And that little children, little infants are born evil. They're born snakes. Yeah, they smell sweet and their skin is soft and they gurgle and our hearts pitter-patter. I remembered a, a day back when we lived in Spicewood where, I can't remember all the details, but a snake showed up in our, in our grass. And um, I remember looking at that snake and knowing that was not a good snake. You know how you can sort of get the vibes of good and bad snakes. First of all, it was quite large. And second, it did not look like any garter snake or any sort of mellow snake. It reminded me of, of a copperhead. You know, I went in and looked at the book and... And it, it, I'm colorblind, so, you know, you would think that I would have known to have somebody else. But it looked to me like a poisonous snake. And so my, my oldest son, Joseph, and I went out with a hoe, right, to kill the snake. That's what men do. <clears throat> and so we take the hoe and we cut this snake in half, right? And we think we've killed it, right? And I'll never forget what happened. You open the snake up, and all of a sudden, somewhere between four and six little snakes come out of that snake, and immediately 
they just are going everywhere in the grass. So where we thought that we were killing one snake, the act of killing the snake unleashed, what, four, six? Remember how many it was? At least six, Mary Lee says. And look, this is a perfect metaphor for all the, all the methods that we have. To try to justify ourselves and to refuse to go to God. The very act of us trying to suppress the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of, through that very act, we end up unleashing another six snakes. And why? Well, because, amazing as it is, it's because we find it impossible to humble ourselves before a God who is rich in mercy and love and grace. And people, that just does not make any sense. Why would we be resistant to a God who is rich in mercy? Why? Why? It just doesn't make any sense. As a preacher, I'm very aware that often the reason is that you don't like me. And there are a lot of things not to like about me. But I guarantee you there were a lot of things not to like about Paul and about Peter, about John Bunyan. And no, I think I'm infinitely worse than them. That's not my point. My point is God could have sent an angel to preach to you and then it would have been somebody sufficiently perfect and dignified for you to repent. <laughs> you know. But God actually wants you to have... Uh, well, uh, to have a fool, to have a sinner, to have a white man, to have an American, to have a 61-year-old preach to you. Because why? Well, because it starts the process of humbling you. If you have an inferior preaching to you, then you realize it's not about the preacher, it's about God. It doesn't matter how much you dislike me. It doesn't matter. You're not facing a future under the judgment of Tim Bailey. Tim Bailey is such a coward, he'd let you off scot-free. But God is holy. And he will not allow you to enter his presence with pride. You only will be allowed into his presence if you are dressed in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. He has made a way. That way is the only way. That way is the path that crosses under the cross of Jesus Christ, and only by coming under his blood will you be saved. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God, who is rich in mercy... From his love, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you know what grace is? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is something you're given that you don't deserve. By undeserved favor, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, and this is a wonderful ending, it's purpose clause, right? So that... You all remember your English classes. So that, this is why God did this to some and not to others. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What this means is that those of you that have a godly grandmother, those of us that knew Nana until she died this past week, those of us who remember Rita Cuffey, those of us who have a Christian husband, who have a Christian wife, those of us who have a Christian son. God, through those Christians, is constantly preaching to you what? 
the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward them. Not towards the whole world, but towards those who are in Christ. Now, if you're not a believer at this point, you should have a question in your brain. And your question should be this. Well, what of those who are not Christians? In what way do they glorify God? Because it does seem as if everything is about the glory of God, right? And so if Christians exist to proclaim what? To proclaim the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward them. What do non-Christians proclaim? Well, what non-Christians proclaim in this life and in the life to come, is the holiness and the justice of God. And God is not apologetic about his holiness and his justice. Both God's justice and God's mercy are perfectly harmonized, and the world either proclaims through their judgment, through being under his wrath, his justice and holiness, or the world proclaims his loving mercy. And all men, all women, all children are separated by that division. Every person here is separated by that division. In this room right now are those who proclaim the holiness and judgment of God, his wrath against ungodliness. And in this room right now are those who proclaim the tender love and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Now, (laughs) you know, it's a stupid question. But if you could choose which you proclaim for all eternity, which would you proclaim? Yeah, but my wife has been on my case our whole marriage to stop drinking. And I'll be damned if I'm going to. And yes, you will. Yeah, but you're an American and I'm Chinese. And I'll be damned if I'm going to take American religion. Yes, you will. I'm just as good as any Christian. I don't need to humble myself. I've been baptized. I go to Mass every day. I'm an upstanding member of Clear Note Church, Bloomington. And I am not going to proclaim the mercy of God. I'm going to proclaim my self-righteousness. I'll be damned if I give that up. And yes, you will. Yes, you will. Jesus said this. He lived a life that was perfectly holy. Everybody knew what holiness was from watching him. And then he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. And that's a promise of God incarnate, God in flesh. And so you think about all the reasons that you have to be self-righteous, to refuse to humble yourself in front of Christians, because they're all Republicans. But we're not, trust me. (laughs) You think of all the reasons you have to not humble yourself when that proud woman who is your wife has been judging you your whole life. All the reasons not to go to Jesus when your father was such a nasty man, but he was a deacon in the Baptist church. All the reasons.
reasons you have not to come to Jesus, but listen, you're not coming to your father. You're not coming to your wife. You're coming to Christ. And he says, I am meek and humble of heart. And you will find rest for your soul. He also says, those who come to him, he'll never cast out. Now, I'm going to say one other thing, and it's kind of weird. But this is the last thing I'm going to say to you. And it'll seem weird, but here's the final thing to say. If you will not come to Jesus Christ, the reason is because he refuses to draw you. You understand this. He said you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but he made you alive. And so if you don't come to him, it's because you don't hear his voice calling you. It's because he's not drawing you. It's because you don't have faith. Now, if, if you were a little child and you heard me say that about a candy bar, you know, the reason you don't have a candy bar is because your brother actually, I, I gave it to your brother, but I'm not giving it to you. What would you do? What would you do? I want one too. And your father would just be heartless and cruel. And he'd say, don't come to me. I don't care if you're weary and heavy laden. I won't give you rest. I am proud of heart. And you'll never find rest for your soul. Your yoke is heavy and your death is coming. Is that how a dad would respond? No, he'd say, come to me. Come to me. And you'd say, but you said that those who come to you, you draw. And he says to you, I said that those who come to me, I will never cast out. You say, but I can't come. He said, I said that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Come. But those who come to you are drawn by you. You're not drawing me. And he says, what about this exchange right now? I say, come. You say, but I can't. And he says, yes, you mean that you're dead in your trespasses and sins? Is that what you meant? And you say, yes. And he says, that confession is because I drew you. I have raised you from the dead like Jesus Christ. Even your pride at the moment of coming has to die. Do not accuse God of evil because those who come to him, he draws. That is his good pleasure. Because even the coming to him must give him glory and not you. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this day each year when we may, by faith in Jesus Christ, celebrate his resurrection. Father, I pray for every soul here this morning that you will show them that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, that they are slaves of Satan, and that the only hope for them is to be raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. Draw them to yourself. Release them from their sins. Bind them into your church, that they may one day see Jesus coming again and be raised from the ground, from their grave, to meet him in the air. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.